0: Hi, welcome to War Stories from the Womb. I'm your host, Paulette Kamenika. I'm an economist and a writer, and the mother of two girls. Today's episode features a moving story from a woman who recalls her first pregnancy in the late 1960s. The pregnancy was unintended. She was 18 and unmarried. Her parents, her social setting, and the cultural expectation of the time suggested that she had two options. Either she could marry her then boyfriend and start a family, or have the baby in secret and surrender the newborn to the social workers who vaguely tended to her in the home for unwed mothers where she spent the end of her pregnancy and birth. Raised in the Catholic faith to strict parents, abortion was not something she'd think to pursue and it wasn't legal or easily accessed, especially for a woman who wasn't married. My guest reflects on how dramatically cultural views of sex and marriage have changed since she was first pregnant and how her feelings about these topics have changed as well. I also spoke with an author of many books on adoption who experienced her own version of pregnancy in the 60s outside of marriage. Let's get to this inspiring story. Hi, thanks so much for coming on the show. Can you introduce yourself
1: and tell us where you're from? Hi, I'm Catherine Vogley, and I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and have lived in uh, Portland, Oregon for the last 21 years. Oh my God, I'm so jealous.
0: I love Portland. hmm Thank you. I feel like that's the home of good ice cream and coffee. And donuts and beer.
1: And see? Oh my God. Why would anyone leave? That's super lovely. Well, the thing is, you can be, you can go to the mountain. You could go skiing, which I don't do anymore, but you could go skiing and then go surfing, because you can go out to the coast in the same day. So that's people like to say that. I mean it would be a very strenuous day, but you could (laughs) do that.
0: Oregon has a lot to offer, for sure. We're here to talk about pregnancy. So
1: why don't you walk us into your story? Yeah, I raised two daughters. They are now in their late 40s. And uh, I'm one of five children. Myself, I'm a middle child. I think my place as a middle child is part of my story of why I wanted to be a mother so much. My mother was super stressed and I wanted to do a better job than she did. Are you third of five? Or are you four or five? I'm third of five. Yeah. Yeah. My mother had three children in three years. Wow. And I was the third of those. And they had very little money and Catholic and strict. And they were young. And she was so stressed. And so was my father. And, uh, it, and being the third. And my older sister, 18 months older than me, was colicky. And so I... Once I had my own children, I realized how time consuming and how tiring it is to be the parent of a little child, a baby under a year, but then to have three under three years yeah. and have one of them screaming all night long, you know, it, it dawned on me, no wonder she was acting nuts and <laughs> no wonder I was always being pushed to the side and told to be quiet.
0: Yeah. It, it, nothing like your own babies to make you more sympathetic to your parents. That's right. right. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. So so were your daughters your first pregnancies? No. My first pregnancy was a baby that I kept secret most of my life. I was pregnant at 18. I was in nursing school. It, you know, I look back on it now and, and 18 doesn't seem so terribly young, but I felt... I felt childish. I felt like uh, I had no choice in what was happening. My boyfriend of two years didn't want to get married and he walked out and my parents kind of went nuts and, and was a, a burden of shame that was so strong and it just kind of covered my whole being. So
0: this sounds like an, an unintended pregnancy. Right. As the mother of an 18-year-old, I can say 18 feels pretty young. 18 is high school. I was through my first
1: year of nursing school.
0: So Actually. you you may have been a little bit ahead. So uh-huh. that that seems pretty young to me. Yeah. And so it, it was unintended. And then you find out because you
1: missed your period? Is that how you found out? Yeah. I, I missed my period. You know, I started to feel funny, you know, sick at my stomach and so on. And I mean, I feel like I knew pretty quickly when I missed my second period, I knew, you know, this is, I'm pregnant. I'm sure I am. I did, went to did, my. Did they
0: have those kits they have now where you could test no, them? Out?
1: No, there was no way to tell for sure. No way to tell on your own. And by the way, there were no birth control pills back there. It was illegal back then. I mean, it was illegal to prescribe birth control to an unmarried woman. Wow. (laughs) And birth control pills really had just come on the market and they were considered dangerous because people suffered blood clots. And anyway, so you couldn't get birth control pills. And so the choices were limited as far as how to protect yourself.
0: To get a better sense of the world Catherine is living in, I took her story to another woman with direct experience of this period who has written about it extensively. Today, we're lucky to have Karen Wilson Buterbau on the show. She's the author of a number of books about adoption, including most recently, The Baby Scoop Era, Unwed Mothers, Infant Adoption, and Forced Surrender. So today we're here to talk about Catherine's experience. Her pregnancy and birth took place in 1969, which is in the Baby Scoop era from post-World War II to 1973. And Catherine is telling us that birth control was illegal unless you were married, which is kind of hard to get your mind around. Maybe you can tell us more things about this period. What did the world look like for a woman who was pregnant outside of marriage?
2: I always uh, describe that era of time as black and white with no gray. It was either or. So it was a very judgmental time, especially for women. You didn't have any information, especially during the baby scoop era. So this was a time of of not having any information about sex, about uh, birth control. Uh, They locked all those books away. Um, you weren't able to get any birth control methods. Even if they had the pill, they kept it behind the counter. You you were not able to get it unless you were married. Same thing with other methods of birth control, condoms. We did not have sexual education in our schools. It was considered a taboo topic. So we didn't have any information highway like you do today. And, and the baby scoop era is, you know, a very short window of time, as you said, between the end of World War II and the beginning of 1973. There are certain criteria during that period of time that existed that, that does not exist before or since the Baby Scoop era. And the reason that it ends with 1973 is because early 1973, we had choice. Yeah. Right. You know, it begins when it does because the end of the war brought home many soldiers who had STDs and rendered their wives unable to conceive, not to mention the fact that that's when baby boomers uh, mostly were born and we were the ones caught in the web because we came to sexual maturity during the baby scoop era. So if we did not have information about pregnancy, how could we prevent it? So there are certain criteria that only apply to that timeline. And there were more babies that were Uh, given birth by baby boomer unmarried females of course they called us unwed was the term of the day during that period of time than at any other time before or since when we were automatically expelled from school removed from our neighborhood removed from our family home we were deemed inferior that sounds fairly traumatic i remember as a young
0: person even though i was on birth control being spasmodically nervous if you know my period was a day late yeah so I can somewhat relate to the stress of you know this is not a time in which I want to be pregnant (laughs) and if I do get pregnant like many
1: things will follow yeah well I'm sympathetic to 18 year old you yeah well it wasn't just this is not a time when I want to be pregnant I didn't want my mother to know that I had had sex I mean that was huge for me it's something these days it sounds kind of Uh, almost unbelievable but you know you were expected to be a virgin until you're married my mother really stressed that it was the highest value to be a virgin and you know she acted like sex was dirty unless you were married she seemed to have this aversion to a woman's physicality Marilyn Monroe was, you know, she would just and take her head. And th- my parents were just really pretty uptight. <laughs> it was just, and so the shame, the, the fear that I had around pregnancy was primarily in the beginning was that my mother would know that I had had sex. And do you think that's also a, a kind of religious message or just yeah. wider culture in general? I think both. I think both. You know, I had loads of friends who were not Catholic, and yet it was pervasive. If you were pregnant back then and you weren't married, you had a shotgun wedding. And if you were pregnant and not married, nobody knew about it, you know, if you didn't get married because you went away. Girls in my world didn't have babies if they weren't married. It just didn't. Uh, So what year is this? This was 1968.
0: So it's before Roe v. Wade. Oh, yeah. So also the idea of, a, of an abortion, which maybe because of your Catholic upbringing is not even in your universe, it's also just not accessible. Both. Yes.
1: And my boyfriend's mother suggested that I have an abortion. And it startled me. My parents certainly never suggested that. In my 18-year-old mind, it was, number one, scary. Number two, murder. Murder. And, you know, I thought I could, I could die for heaven's sake. And I didn't want to, I always heard about quote unquote, back alley abortions. And I could just picture myself going into a wet, dark, dirty place and having my insides ripped out. That was my, you know, 18 year old thought. So that I was offended when she suggested an abortion. And um, I just said, no, that's, I'm not going to do that.
0: Well, this sounds very stressful. So so at some point you decide to tell your mother or how does this all unfold?
1: Yeah. You know, I finally went to the doctor and uh, he confirmed it. And so I told my boyfriend, well, we have to go and, and uh, tell my parents.
0: Wait, let, so let they, me ask a question. Is the doctor
1: kind to you or are they judgmental? Very judgmental. I actually... I didn't know any doctors, any um, OBGYN doctors. I had never had a pelvic exam and, you know, I was pretty scared. And the only OB I knew or the only gynecologist I knew was my mother's doctor. Okay. You know, she had had five kids and, and she talked about him. And, and so I knew his name and I, I knew he was in Oakland. So he's the one I went to. And of course he had delivered me. So and he knew my mother, you know, for five children he knew her, and so when he said I was pregnant, he was disgusted, and uh, he said, "So what are you going to do? Are you going to tell your mother, or should I tell her? Should I call her?" And I, I felt like I was in grade school, and you know, he was the principal, and. I said, no, you know, I was crying and, and just terribly upset. And I said, no, I'll tell her. And he said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I will. So yeah, it was humiliating. It, from the very start, it was humiliating. Do, do we look back on that
0: conversation now and think differently about the way that the doctor treated you and
1: the way that you were made to feel? You know, I could go on about how everything that happened and how I was made to feel or how I felt. And I can dish out a lot of blame, but you know, things were different back then. And it really, everything, it just fit, it's how it was. I couldn't ever have imagined that my world would change as much as it has between then and now. I think that a young woman would want to get pregnant and not have a husband is just, it's just, you know, back then it was just incomprehensible. And my feelings have changed toward abortion, for sure. And maybe that's a whole other program. I don't know if you want me to get into that or not.
0: Well, we can, we can talk about it at the end. because I mean, I think the show is about the transformative process of pregnancy and how it's different experienced than it is described. And I think abortion is part of that story. I mean, you have to tell the whole story, right? It's all these things that can happen when you're pregnant. And so many people come and talk about the physicality of pregnancy that's unanticipated, all the things that come with it. And so abortion is part of that, right? Like you can't, I mean, you could tell half the story, but that seems counterproductive. But let's, let's focus on your experience right now. So you've decided you're going to tell your mother. And do you feel like you're going to tell your mother because it's either you or the doctor
1: or you just think, I don't have any other choice? There's no way out. You know, I mean, I didn't have a driver's license. I didn't have a job. I was in school. My boyfriend was a junior at Notre Dame, I think, or a sophomore. I can't remember a junior at Notre Dame. And he, you know, we were both from Pittsburgh, So we had to go away to school and so on. Once you're pregnant, there's no way to for me, there was no way to undo it. And so there was no, you know, I couldn't run away, there was no place for me to reach out to. And really, the shame was like uh, a straitjacket around me. I just didn't feel, you know, I look back on it. And I think I really did have a lot of options. My grandparents lived in Fort Lauderdale. I could have gone and stayed with them. My sister was married. We were very close. I could have reached out to her for help. But I was so ashamed. I didn't want anybody to know. And, and so do, you, I kept...
0: do you think your sister and your grandparents would react differently than your parents?
1: Well, my sister would have for sure. I know that my grandparents. I don't know. I honestly don't know. My, my family, my parents, the adults in my family were so straight-laced and proper that, again, for my grandparents to know that I had had sex, I mean, it's just, sex just wasn't, there wasn't such a thing, you know? No. And, and to admit that I too was human, it, it was, I can't express how humiliating and shameful it was. And, and I was so afraid. And afraid of what? I don't know. I was just afraid.
0: Well, it sounds in part like afraid of judgment, which seems reasonable. But I'm wondering if your boyfriend felt the same way or he's scot-free.
1: He was a fairly responsible individual. And I don't know what went on between him and his parents. He was the oldest in the family of three boys. And he would be the first one to graduate from college. They were, the grandparents were immigrants, um, Italian people. So this was a, a, a source of great pride for them that he graduated from college. And now look what he's done, right. And so he, I think he felt like he too had no choice. You know, we had the big meeting, and there was a big blow up. And my parents said, Well, what are you going to do? And he said he didn't know, and he wanted to finish school at Notre Dame. And she said, Well, there's colleges in Pittsburgh, you know, you can which schools and blah, blah, blah. And he said he didn't know. So he went away. She said, go away for a week and come back and give us your decision. She was running the whole show, right? So he comes back in a week and we all sit down in the living room again. And he says, I can't get married. And so she, it's just so dramatic. She jumps up and she screams at him and says, get out, get out and don't ever come back here. So then I ended up going to a Home for unwed mothers, which cost twenty-two hundred dollars, and my mother said he's going to pay it. He shouldn't get away scot-free, and so it ended up that he did pay it. And that was a lot of money back then. He told me it was all from him. He earned work full time and whatnot at the railroad or something like that. And you know, the I think it was the median income that year was seven thousand dollars. Oh wow! Oh my God! <laughs> Wow, so yeah, so no, he wasn't spot free. okay. Yeah, but he definitely he totally shut down as far as I was concerned. I mean, to me, he was not. I didn't get any support from him. He was just gone. From my that life. seems
0: unbelievably hard. Also, twenty two hundred dollars sounds like a luxury resort, which I'm guessing it was not. No,
1: it was not. And it's interesting you asked that because recently I thought the same thing. I thought, am I, am I remembering wrong? And I went back and looked up what I could find about cost of, I was, I delivered in a hospital, the cost of a hospital delivery, the cost of meals, et cetera. And I came to the conclusion that it, I'm remembering, right. It was $2,200. Wow. So I went in um, November 1st and I was three weeks overdue. Had a terrible, terrible labor and delivery. Wait,
0: wait, let me slow you down here for a second. What's the pregnancy like? And are you spending your entire pregnancy
1: at this place or? No, they don't take, didn't take girls until they were seven months pregnant. Okay. And uh, so I had to find a place to hide between five months and seven months. So I found a. So you're not at school anymore. Correct. Things kind of just fell in place, so to speak. I found out I was pregnant in, must've been like May, first part of May, and my term was coming to an end. So I finished the term, and then we had a break of like three weeks. So this is nursing school, not college. So I had a break and everybody cleans out their dorm rooms because when you come back after break, you will move up to a different dorm level, right? it was a three-year program. So anyway, I uh, had finished my freshman year and I waited until everybody cleaned out their rooms. I didn't go when everybody else went. And once everybody was done, then I went in, in the empty dorm and cleaned out my room. And I didn't tell anybody. I just, I didn't tell anybody. And so people didn't know what happened to me. I didn't come back.
0: This sounds incredibly hard and incredibly lonely.
1: So oh, it was, yeah. It was. I'm
0: gonna start crying. This is such a weird way to treat young women. This is such a. I understand it was a different time, like intellectually, I understand that, but viscerally, it's very hard not to feel angry on your behalf at all these larger cultural pressures
1: you're being forced to bear. Yeah, yeah. It was. It, it was such an unjust and cruel thing to put on young women. And, and the thing is, I'm just one person and there were, you know, the numbers vary. I've, I've read uh, 400,000, I've read a million, etc. cetera. I, I can't get a, a, a tight grip on statistics. And what I've read is it's difficult to get the statistics yep. of how many women gave up children in secret during that period, during the baby scoop era, the 50s and 60s.
0: Let's talk about the numbers here. So Catherine was saying she'd seen all different kinds of numbers about how common this was and that it was tricky to get reliable statistics. So I thought for sure you would have an opinion on both of those.
2: Yes, say. I do have some statistics. I had a collection of encyclopedia of social workbooks from the 60s. The number of illegitimate live births by year. And, and you can see that from 1960, the babies of unmarried mothers uh, were 42,707. And yet in 1966, my year, it went up to 67,056. So, I mean, the by the end of probably 69, I think 68 and 69 through 72, were the highest numbers of surrendered babies um, to strangers for infant adoption? Those wow. were the bumper crop years, they call them. Every year, the numbers increased because it was such a ready supply and such a huge demand.
1: But there, I'll tell you, there are a lot of people around because just in writing my book, you know, if I'd be in a workshop, or the writing classes I took, somebody would come up to me often, really often, and tell me in confidence that they had given up a baby and still keep the secret. Nobody knows that they had a child. And so, you know, it really, as time went on and I was working on this book, it became clear to me that this is a story that people like me, you know, we're all older now. We had babies in the 60s. People like me are holding on to their pain and their story and not letting it out. In doing this, I, writing this story along the way, I kept saying to my writing group, I don't know. Nobody's going to care about this. You know, it's my thing. It's what happened to me. And people disagreed. There was one person in my group who actually told me in confidence that that was her story too. And if it wasn't for my writing group, I probably would not have published my book because they kept pushing me to do it. It is a time capsule in
0: some ways, and it is kind of a an incredible story, which I'm glad that you shared, because even today, while Roe v. Wade is being challenged in a significant way, it's hard to believe that this is where we are. But probably from your perspective, we're light years ahead of the what you experienced in this world of pregnancy and secrecy and it just, it, it's such a lack of awareness and understanding of what pregnancy is and does to a person.
1: Even at 18, i wh- how was the pregnancy? I had the normal, you know, morning sickness, which I had to hide, of course. Yeah, I think that the, the, first, the first part of my pregnancy was fairly easy. I, I'm a person who swells up. So I had a lot of, of uh, problems with my feet swelling and being, you know, feeling too hot all the time. But then I was my baby was overdue. And, it, you know, my, well, let me back up. There were things that happened that I didn't know were going to happen, like quickening, for example, you know, I felt the the little uh, twinges, and I didn't know you know, what was going on and and I talked to the woman I, I was living with for those few months and she kind of cleared it up for me. But this I'll tell you, as an 18-year-old girl with a you know a body, a young body like an 18-year-old girl, it was the stretch marks that got me. The stretch marks, I have dry skin and so, you know, they started as these lines, these vertical lines and on my belly, and they just kept growing. And more of them came and it was it was very disfiguring and uh, very hard for me to see and to know.
0: <laughs> I can relate to this actually. You have spent your entire life with society telling you that part of your worth is what your body looks like. So it's impossible to just drop that once you're pregnant when all these changes happen, right? It's all these things in such dramatic conflict. Yeah. Of course you're going to feel unhappy with that. Of course you will. That makes perfect sense. This is the most human thing you're going to do. And there's
1: no way. I have the double whammy of hiding and having the stretch marks. And my mother saying, you'll, you'll have baby and then you'll move on. And it'll all be behind you. But not only emotionally, was it never behind me? But then I had, as a young woman, you know, who was brought up to believe virginity is, you know, the, the most precious thing you have. That now, not only did I not have that, but my body was disfigured, and I mean disfigured. My baby was three weeks late and forty hours of labor. Oh my God! Alone, and wait. Uh, so let, let's talk a little bit more about that. Are you getting regular OB visits while you're pregnant? You know. I had to have, but I cannot remember that. In in writing my book, there were certain things that I just could not get a hold of in my mind. I can't, you know, I could remember a lot of flashbulb moments, but my OB visits, I cannot remember. So before you give birth, how how do you know today's the day? Well, like I said, I was, so I was in a, a home for unwed mothers. Everybody who had come in when I was there, when I first came in, was already gone. People who came in after I was there were already gone. And I thought I was never going to have a baby. So finally, you know, I was having a lot of Braxton Hicks, a lot of pains, but I was not dilating enough for them to send me to the hospital. So finally, my water didn't break. I started having pains and I think I just, I feel like I just willed it into happening. It's kind of like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to burst apart if I don't get this baby out. And so baby was actually, I think, borderline stressed. I know I was distressed and they didn't want to do a C-section because I was an unwed mother and there would be a scar, which You know, I, this is what they told me, but as an adult, in retrospect, I tend to think that, and this is just my opinion, that it didn't have so much to do with the scar as it did with the cost. I think they didn't want to do a section because that would mean, you know, that's as much as a surgery. It is a surgery. Yeah. And so they let me go until, you know, they couldn't let me go anymore, I guess. So how did I know? I guess just the pains finally got regular and you know when they're not regular every x number of minutes then you're not in labor that's what i was told
0: what is the home for unwed girls like is it is it a church is it a its own building what's it look like
1: it's its own building it was fairly modern building for the time was rosalia foundling home catholic charities place run by the sisters of charity in Pittsburgh. It reminded me very much of my nursing dormitory. You know, there were, you know, rooms and there were two people in each room. There was a lounge where you watch TV and played games and things like that. There was a chapel where they had mass every day and we were encouraged to go to mass. There was a dining area and there was a, an outdoor area, but we didn't go outside. Some girls would leave, but I never did. Well, I did one time. My father came over. They were only 20 minutes away, my parents. (laughs) And they came over. My dad came over and took me for a ride after dark. I was there for Christmas time to see the lights and the windows downtown in Pittsburgh. That's something we used to do as a family, drive around at Christmas time and look at the lights. And my mother didn't come because she didn't want to see me pregnant. Yeah, so what I remember about Christmas was that everybody else left. I don't know where they went, but they left and I was there alone. And I dinner by myself in the dining room. Everything was shut down because it was Christmas. So God, they're really taking this hiding away
0: thing seriously.
1: Well, I did. Okay. You know, I I have heard other stories from women like me whose parents would come and get them. Women who still communicated with people, but I, I didn't. And I, my mother suggested that I that my dad take me downtown to look at the windows, but I said I didn't want to because somebody would see me. And we went back and forth. Well, then she said nobody will see you. It'll be after dark. And as a matter of fact, you know, she didn't come because she didn't want to see me. So it was a constant message from her that she couldn't handle it. Did you become friendly with other women who were in the home with you? Yeah. They're my roommate who I don't write about in the book, my roommate and I became close. And we kept in touch after the birth. Um, and eventually we drifted apart. And with the internet, I've tried to find her and I can't find any, anything about her. So. And
0: did she... Bear this experience in a similar way that
1: you did? You know, everybody's situation is different. Her sister, who was like eight years older than she was, lived in Pittsburgh also. And she would go out occasionally to her sister's place. But yeah, I think that we were both together in our grief. And she was Catholic too. In fact, I think all the girls there were Catholic, you know,
0: at the home. Wow. So let's get back to your birth. So you're having the regular contractions and, and is someone with you or how does that all work? No, nobody was with me. So I took details of Catherine's birth to Karen to better understand the larger context in which it occurred. First of all, her mother didn't come to the birth, right? She had to give birth alone. Oh yeah, me too. Yes. Mm-hmm. So Very this true. is another question about yeah, who does this benefit? I don't understand whose decision this is. And she it's said to that- terrorize
2: you, it's to keep you from reoffending. They didn't want recidivism. They didn't they did not want you to know what's coming because they wanted you proper, properly terrorized. And the parents, I think, did not want to be exposed to what the reality of what was occurring. Yeah. Uh, so oftentimes they would even sign the documents in advance that if you get you had a boy, they would be circumcised. I have the signed paper by my mother. And oftentimes the babies were born at night. So, so nobody from the paternity home, of course, wanted to give up their nighttime hours to stay with you. Not even a nurse would be with you. They would just maybe check on you, you know, every hour or something.
1: Now they take you to the hospital. You know, you're admitted they kept my door closed because I was a Rosalia girl, and so it was all secret. So, you know, nobody came in. I think one nurse was assigned to me so that it would be limited exposure. I don't mean that I had a private nurse. I mean that only one nurse would see me. The doors kept closed, and I was alone, and I knew that I had done the wrong thing by getting pregnant, and I deserved this. I was a perfect martyr. I just you know, I couldn't suffer enough to pay for my,
0: my sin. God, that seems like a lot to bear. And so it sounds like the, the delivery was pretty hard.
1: Yeah. I, you know, after two days, I was pretty worn out and there was a nurse that came in. I'll never forget her name was Lynn and she came in the second evening when I was still there. And she said, she couldn't believe that I was still there and she she was close to me in age. And I remember her crying and saying, you know, I could be, I could be you laying there and you could be me. And she said, you shouldn't be alone. And I, she said, I just can't, I would sit with you myself if I didn't have to work. So she was one person who showed me some kindness and, uh, some, you know, Real sympathy. My cousin who's a priest who arranged for the for me to go to Rosalia, or I should say, gave us the information. He came in one day and he's the only visitor I had. And he said that my mother sent him because she knew I was in labor and she didn't know what was taking so long. So he just came in and gave me a blessing and left.
0: That seems incredibly hard do you know whether the issue was your cervix wasn't dilated or like, why was
1: the birth taking so long? I don't, you know, I was 18. I don't know. I just know that they kept saying you're not all the way yet. Okay. So So, that sounds
0: not, not all the way dilated is what that sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I
1: think these days they give epidurals, don't they? So they didn't do anything like that back then. There was no, there was no sedation at all. until. I was having the baby, you know, the final stage of of labor and they put me on a cart and took me into the delivery room. I remember just being so frantic and holding my hands over my face and saying, just give me the gas. My mother had told me like, you know, way before any of this happened, that they would give gas right when the baby was being born and so they. They put the mask over my face and I blacked out basically. And when I woke up, the big light was on and there was all this clanging of pans, you know, they're cleaning up and there are people bustling around and I'm laying there and, you know, trying to, I wasn't wide awake. I was still recovering from, it was ether, And, you know, it gives you a terrible taste in your mouth and uh, saying, you know, what, what, What's going on? And they said, You're all done. You can go back to your room now. <laughs> and come on over on this cart. And I said, What about the baby? And they said, Oh, you had a girl, because back then you didn't know what you were gonna have. Yeah. And so I couldn't move. I was just exhausted. Apparently it was a traumatic birth because I went on to bleed for months. Wow. And I didn't have I didn't have care afterwards. I don't know if if something was broken when I, when she was born uh, or what, but I remember I couldn't walk afterwards. And my mother said at some point, I don't know, I think maybe you should go to the doctor. This is not normal, still bleeding after two months. <laughs> and did you go to the doctor? I don't think I did. I, I, that's another piece that I can't remember specifically. So after you give birth, they just, they send you home or? No, you, after you give birth, they, I think it must, I must have stayed at least one night. I don't remember what time of day she was born. I think she was born in the morning, but I can't swear to it. But I know I was sent back to Rosalia very quickly. I don't remember if it was the same day or if it was the next day, but I was taken out through the kitchen. Because they, you know, they. I remember this big old wheelchair hunking over the, the floor, and people in the kitchen looking. You know, like the only time somebody would be brought through the kitchen, I guess, is if you were a failure girl and you were hiding. And there was a cab out back, so I went out through the service entrance and back of the hospital, and um, I got into the cab and I went to close the door and a nurse comes running out of the hospital and she's screaming at me, wait, wait, you can't go yet. You can't go yet. And she's got the baby who I hadn't seen. And I had been told over and over and over at Rosalia, you can't see your baby. You can't hold your baby. If you do, you'll never be able to give her up. And (laughs) the nurse went to give her to me, I put my hands up. I said, no, 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 I can't, no, I can't hold her. And the nurse was totally annoyed. And she said, why would you say that? Why don't you wanna hold your baby? And I said, they told me, don't ever hold your baby. And she said, that's ridiculous. How's she supposed to get back to the to Rosalia? And I said, I don't know, can you bring her? And she said, no, this is the way we do it. Now hurry up, it's cold out here She's in January. So she put the baby in my arms and so I held her for the 10 minutes or whatever it was, 15 minutes between the hospital and Rosalia. It was the only time I got to hold her.
0: I'm confused. How is she supposed to get back to Rosalia if you weren't supposed to touch her?
1: So there is a, a prenatal section okay. where, where the young women were waiting. And then there was a, a second area that was nursery and the postpartum section. And the nursery was divided away. So it was the pre prenatals couldn't go over and see the nursery, right? And I, I can't remember specifically, but I think that the postpartum floor was on a different floor, or at least a, a, a long ways from the nursery, because they wanted to discourage you from seeing your baby. It sounds
0: like there are systems in place to strongly encourage the young woman to give up their baby. In your book, you talk about how these homes were originally run by religious workers who very strongly believed in the idea that the mother and child should be together. And at some point, it sounds like maybe in the 50s, religious workers were kind of replaced by social workers or adoption workers. And somehow that idea was turned around. And now the best thing for the baby and the mother are not to be together. And can you talk a little bit about how that happened? Where, Where is that idea coming from?
2: Right. Well, during my research, I found a book called Fallen Women, Problem Girls by Regina Kunzel. And she goes into detail about the professionalization of the new field called child welfare, which is social work. And what was amazing to me was that these people made themselves the experts in unwed motherhood because they knew how much money they could make by separating mother and child because the demand was so great that they made themselves essentially specialized in the area of child welfare, which was adoption social workers or caseworkers, as they were called back then. And they started radio and all kinds of media. Their plan was to reach out to the general population and let them know there was an epidemic of unwed mothers and we have to solve this problem and we have to change it from the mother being deviant and neurotic, which would make people not want to adopt her baby because somehow it would be flawed. They had to change the narrative to, oh, these girls come from very good homes. They are white and they are mostly middle-class. A baby from this white mother who had sinned and had broken society's rules by getting pregnant. And and it was mandated that if you found yourself in, in the condition of being pregnant and not married, it was mandated that your baby would be adopted by a deserving and more deserving married family who could provide the baby everything that we apparently or supposedly could not. So they were responsible for aiding and abetting the demand for these babies. And we didn't even get information about what was happening inside our bodies. And that was intentional to keep us from bonding emotionally and physically with our own baby. Um, And we can go into that more about thought reform and brainwashing and how they used it uh, to their advantage to get these babies uh, and kept us away from the new mothers completely yeah. separated from them, so that we could not learn what their experience was. So keep us properly terrorized arms to their new family.
1: So the baby went in the nursery, and I went in the postpartum area. that was that was a bad time. It was hard. That oh.
0: seems uh, particularly cruel. To say you take her over and put her in the nursery—that seems—that seems seems nuts. Yeah. So then you stay in postpartum for a little while, then go back to your parents' house.
1: Yep, I went back home, and you know my mother was all a twitter like you know she's, you're home now. You're going to get better. You're going to get on with your life. You're going to forget about all of this. You just have to keep looking forward. And so that was her mantra every day, you know. Keep looking forward. Don't look back. Don't think about it.
0: One thing I I don't really understand is this press of, like, move on. Let's, uh, this, this. Forget it ever happened. Go on with
2: your life as if it never happened. That's the mantra of what they uh, said to us all along from the minute they got their hands on us until the minute we were discharged empty-handed. Was that you will forget about? We promise you will forget it that this ever happened. You will go on with your life and you will have a children you can keep. You yeah. were told, do not tell anyone. Yeah, they didn't want what they were doing known to the general public, so you know, we're believing them. Well, if you tell everybody's going to think you're, you know, you're used. Uh, dirty laundry. You you you'll never find a decent man who will marry you. You won't be able to find a job. You won't be able to rent an apartment. You won't be able to feed your baby. Your baby will suffer because of you and what you've done. So that was that was you know to hide the evidence of what was done. Don't tell. And boy, did they drill that into our brains. I didn't tell for thirty years. We were very easily uh, manipulated. And so we were grieving privately, and we could talk to no one about it. And so I never had a chance to grieve.
1: I never had a chance to talk about it. I felt my shame. I was able to push it away and feel like, okay, this is what I've got. This is I've just got to keep going. What else am I going to do? Right. So,
0: did you go back to nursing school?
1: Well, I enrolled in a different school, and you know, I people who wanted to know what happened why did you leave that why did you leave St. Joseph's and you know I said well I wasn't sure I wanted to be a nurse and I needed to take some time off I mean that was my explanation in general yeah I started a new school and they allowed me to um, pick up basically where I left off so that was good I mean you know I lost the year because I was out of school but I was able to finish. I did a lot of drinking after that. <laughs> God, I can imagine. I mean, it's a lot of drinking. <laughs> it, it, it's
0: such an enormous thing to imagine putting aside or acting like it didn't happen or, yeah. you know, that's like Academy Award level stuff you have going there. That's <laughs> that, that seems unbelievably hard. Catherine has a hard time adjusting in the postpartum period when she goes back to her parents' house. And she says she did a lot of drinking after that, which I Oh was yes. appropriate.
2: <laughs> Somewhere I came across a syndrome for mothers who had surrendered, never relinquish. It was a surrender because it was a gun to the head experience. You had no choice at all, except to sign. So it's surrendered and, and terminology is important. But I read the syndrome where mothers, when they returned home, they face drinking, drugs, rape, sleep, disturbances, everything pretty much that you would um, associate with post-traumatic stress disorder. yeah, uh, we faced when we came home, and yet we could talk to no one about it. And that's why they call it disenfranchised grief, yeah, because there was no one that we could turn to, and yet it felt like our baby had died, and I'm imagining
0: complicated, the pregnancies of your children later.
1: Yeah. Well, to a point, I couldn't wait to get married. And I wanted to have a baby right away. I've heard and I've read other people's books, their stories where they spent the rest of their life thinking about their baby that they gave up. And I couldn't, I couldn't let myself. I I just wanted to, like my mother said, move on. And so I got married, not to the baby's father, but to a different person, somebody I found, basically. And I think I just I just charmed him until, you know, I charmed him into marrying me so I could have a baby. <laughs> so when I finally, I, I had a baby pretty quickly. So we were married in April of 71, and my daughter was born in June of 72. And, um, you know, when I said about, him about getting pregnant he said he didn't want to have kids yet and he knew about my baby but he didn't talk about it he just he was just like okay so that happened to you and so I you know in the summer we were married in April in the summer I started talking about having a baby and he said it's too early I don't want to have a baby yet you know we need to get some money and blah blah blah." so I got pregnant in September <laughs> and she was born in June And I swear it was the happiest day of my life. I I just remember holding her and feeling like I finally had what I wanted. I didn't feel like I have finally replaced my child. I just felt like this is, you know, I finally I'm I'm legitimate and I can have a baby, a real baby that I can keep, that I can have a shower for. And people congratulate me and ask me about her and fawn over her. And it was, you know, it was the opposite of everything I had been through.
0: I guess I can see where you're looking to square what happened previously in some ways. Do you look back at 18-year-old you and is the shame dispelled? Do you think now with your experience, like that none of that was right and that wasn't my fault and it's, You know, sex is human and natural, and you know, know, this was an accident.
1: That's a real interesting question. It really took my whole life to get to that point. And I think when I turned was when I was about to publish my book, that's recent, right? And I put it on social media that I had finished my memoir. It was about having a baby at 18 and giving her away. And people in my family, my siblings knew, but people in my family and in my general acquaintances, nobody knew. And so when I did that, that's, that's when I felt like I opened the doors and like I'm saying it to the world. And that's when my shame started to dissolve. When I first started the memoir, which I never intended to publish, I used a a pen name. My name was Susan Siskin. I think it's a pretty cool name. But I was told, told, no, you can't do that when you write a memoir. Yeah. you You can't do that. And so then I started calling myself Kathy in the book. And that was really, really hard. And eventually when somebody in my writing group said, oh, you're gonna publish this someday. And I remember having a flip-flop in my test, like, oh, no, 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 no. I can't do that. <laughs> no. And, um, you know, as time went on, I've been working on this for many years. As time went on, it became more solid. And I'll tell you, you're not supposed to write a memoir to, to heal. That's what I read. That's not why I did it, but that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's been a tremendous help to me to be able to talk about it. You know, and the name of my book is I Need to Tell You. I still don't know why I need to tell the story. I still don't know why. But I think of it as kind of like the whole thing is kind of like an abscess. And, you know, it it opened And I just have to keep on getting it all out, you know, for it to heal. And um, I don't know if it will ever go away. I'm not sure. I've been saying before I got the publisher, I said, I, this is, uh, this is too much for me. I'm just going to, I'm going to erase all my my computer files. I'm going to burn all, shred all of my paper. I'm just going to walk away. I'm not going to talk about this or write about this anymore. And, you know, my writing group (laughs) friends said, you can't do that and just take a break and get away from it. And so it's been a hard, hard process. I can
0: imagine there's so much packed into the year that you spent hidden and the years after when you're not supposed to talk about it and not supposed to feel it and not supposed to have any emotional energy around it. But it, it did happen and it is real and, you know you're a person, so that that <laughs> all that stuff lives in you, right, in some way, until that, you until absolutely. you kind of acknowledge it. So it sounds like you found your first child. I did. Yes, I did. And are you allowed to contact them, or how does that work? Is there such a thing as allowed? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, well, in my case, I discovered that you know Pennsylvania had a law in a closed adoption, as do many states the records were sealed for 99 years. And so after my divorce in the nineties, I started wanting to find her, but there was no way that was before the internet, there was no way to really, really search.
0: I'm imagining
1: with the genetic stuff, it's, it's much easier. Yeah. So So the records were sealed for 99 years. And and when I started searching for her, when I started writing this book, I was told, you you know, the records are sealed, et cetera. And this was like 2016, 17. After a long period, I discovered kind of by accident that the laws had actually changed in Pennsylvania in 2011. Oh, wow. That with a, a certain process, the records can be opened. And it seemed that nobody knew that because the baby's father is an attorney and still works in Pittsburgh where the records are located. And I contacted him and asked him for help. And he said, nobody can get into those records, et cetera, et cetera. So he didn't even know that the law had changed. I contacted, after a year of of false leads. I contacted Catholic Charities Social Service Department. And I couldn't believe it. But right away, the woman said, yes, we can find your daughter. Wow. That just, you know, after a year of letter writing and et cetera. So the process is, I don't know what it is today, but this is what it was then. You hire, a, or they ha- have an intermediary, a search agent. So it costs $300. They give the search agent the records. The search agent connects with the baby, the person and the parent and so everybody's still living so that was done a letter is sent out to each of them letting them know that the first mother <laughs> is searching and asking you know them there's no obligation obviously and if they would if they're interested contact the search agent not me but the search agent and so That was quite an emotional process for me. So some time went by, like three weeks, I think it was. And finally, I got an email from my daughter. And that was, it was pretty emotional. So she lives on the East Coast, and I live on the West Coast. And uh, we emailed back and forth several times a day for a long time, months and months. And eventually it kind of dwindled and then we were just texting and the text dwindled and now I don't hear from her. So that original connection, which you said was
2: emotional,
0: is it emotional happy or emotional angry or like what's the tenor?
1: My first thing was to ask for forgiveness to tell her that I didn't want to give her up and tell her I'm sorry that she didn't have her mother with her. To raise her, and she wrote back and said, "There's nothing to forgive. Thank you for giving me life." And then there was a lot of of curiosity, you know, her questions, and that's what the the emails were—questions about her beginnings and what I went through. I gave her everything I could. I gave her pictures of my family. She wanted to hear my voice. I sent her a voice recording. She's so guarded. She wouldn't send me pictures. She wouldn't talk on the phone. I think she's, you know, I think it's a natural thing. She's afraid, she's afraid to trust. And I I was so, I went through a period where I was so anxious to meet her that I offered to fly to her airport. She's in a big city, fly to the airport where she lived and meet her there for lunch and then get on a plane and go back to Oregon like in the same day, just so she wouldn't have to worry about anybody, you know, her parents were a consideration for her, because she's very loyal to them, didn't want to upset them. Her father was upset, though, I guess he said, what does she want after all these years? And, you know, she's, I think she was 45 years old, I'm 46 years old. So, Yeah, and I, I would have loved it if parents had contacted me, I would have loved would still love to speak to her mother, communicate with her mother and find out what she was like growing up. I would just love that.
0: It is an incredible story. And I, I so appreciate you sharing it. And I, I can't help but feel angry for younger you that, that this is what you experienced and that this was deemed okay by so many people. So many people thought this was an appropriate way to treat young women who were in a really hard situation, even if you'd gotten married, it's really hard to be pregnant the first time, Yes. especially as a young person. And it's not like you could go and get, you know, what to expect when you're expecting or look something up on the internet. I know. Right? You just, you, you don't have any of those resources.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So just the conspiracy of, of people around you to say oh this is appropriate treatment of someone in your circumstance just yeah. I, I just I maybe I'm not being empathetic enough to those people but I just feel angry I just feel like that
1: all of that is wrong you know I really appreciate that and that is something that started coming out or coming to me and and surprising my awareness when I started writing about this and people particularly my mother people would say you know how how my mother was and how cruel she was. And I, I didn't know that until I started talking about it. And I, I started realizing, you know, just like you said, I started being, getting a perspective on everything that had happened and picturing myself as a mother and having an 18-year-old daughter and having all that happen and uh, it, I just can't connect. It doesn't, you know, There's, it, regardless of, of the times or whatever, I never would have been able to allow my child, regardless of, of the shame and whatnot. I mean, I, no, I wouldn't have been able to do that.
0: Yeah, well, it's amazing that you wrote the book and I'm so glad it's published. And will you remind us of the name?
1: Yeah, the name is I Need to Tell You I need to tell you, yeah. I need to tell you, yeah. And, and it's funny because people will say, well, what's the name? Go ahead and tell
0: me. <laughs> like who's on first,
1: I right? I exactly.
0: <laughs> well, I'll put a link in the show notes so people can find it. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story.
1: Thank you, Paulette.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks again to Karen for giving us her insights on the baby scoop era. And of course, to Catherine for sharing her story. This episode felt particularly salient when it was originally taped, which was before Roe v. Wade had been overturned. And now it feels even more pressing. These stories that are coming out about what women like Catherine went through have a science fiction feel to them. Pregnancy changes a person in a variety of ways, and many of those changes are lasting ones. We can't lose sight of that in the future like we seem to have done in the past. You can find links to Catherine's book in the show notes at warstoriesfromabomb.com, And I also posted information from Karen's book on the baby scoop era. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another inspiring story.